Welcome to the Public Morality. When I wrote my book, 1963, The Year of Hope and Hostility, I had the pleasure to interview President Kennedy's noted speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. I asked Mr. Sorensen to share his thoughts about June 11, 1963. That was the day that the Buddhist monk set himself on fire in the streets of Saigon, which was the first indication the country known as Vietnam was becoming a problem. Several hours later, Alabama Governor George Wallace stood in front of the University of Alabama to ceremoniously block two Negro students, Vivian Malone and James Hood, from admittance. Several hours later, President Kennedy spoke to the nation about civil rights, elevating it to a moral issue. And then two hours after that, NAACP Director Medgar Evers was assassinated. Sorensen then responded to me by saying, All that occurred on one day? Well, it did happen on one day, and it's one of the most transformational days of the 20th century. Joining me to discuss this monumental day in 20th century American history is someone we've wanted to have on the public rally for some time, Professor Ellen Fitzpatrick. Professor Fitzpatrick is a noted historian at the University of Hampshire and author of eight books, including Letters to Jackie, Condolences from a Grieving Nation. Professor Ellen Fitzpatrick, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron, it's nice to be here. Uh, how is it, in your view, that uh, when we look at the, the events on June 11, 1963, um, they're transformational, but but they've largely been remained under the radar in terms of all this happening within a 24-hour period. Any thoughts about how that's pos- how that happened? Well, it was a very eventful time in the Kennedy presidency, and really, when you pause to think about all of these things converging at once, they were really a product of longer-term tensions and problems that. Uh, Kennedy was facing in this period and that the nation was really dealing with. So you're seeing, of course, the ongoing difficulty in Vietnam and the trouble that uh, Kennedy felt the ZM regime presented to him in Vietnam. So when the Buddhist monk immolated himself on the streets of Saigon and it was uh, captured by an American photographer, Um, that really spoke to uh, deeper problems that had been really building over a longer period of time, of course. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, the civil rights speech that Kennedy would give that evening that had been preceded by the confrontation with George Wallace, the murder of Medgar Evers at midnight, all of those uh, events spoke to the growing tensions in the civil rights movement, the struggle for racial equality that had been, as you know, years, decades, centuries in the making. So um, it is a dramatic convergence, uh, but of course the, the difficulty is much deeper and history can be like that, you know, that in uh, really, uh, what's the expression in the Bible and in the twinkling of an eye that yeah. that life can change? Right. Uh, you, you know, you, you said that I was thinking when, when I when I did my book on '63, the first person I interviewed was Ted Sorensen, and I posed a similar question to him about June 11, 1963, and his response to me was, "Did all that happen on the same day?" <laughs> so it, it, it sort of goes to your point. I mean, so much was going on that even the people who were intimately involved didn't real—I mean, didn't realize in hindsight that it all happened, you know, in a 24-hour period. 
Yes, that's true. And, and, and so and you make another point that I, that I, I want to touch about. You said that these things, I mean, although they converge on a single day, um, they are years, decades in the making. I mean, we could probably, uh, the timeline for Vietnam becoming a quagmire probably started in 1945 when uh, the French were allowed to go back in and, and colonize Indochina region again. So these things didn't just happen, you know, at once. I mean, they're, they're decades in the making. Yeah, and I think um, particularly in the case of the Buddhist protests that um, led to this act of revolutionary suicide on the part of this uh, Buddhist monk, and that was part of a larger demonstration, I think, of 300 monks and nuns in the streets of Saigon. Uh, The Xi'an regime was very worried that the Buddhists were somehow... Um, supporting uh, the Viet Cong or harboring them uh, were dissidents, were troublemakers from the point of view of ZM. And so there was a very harsh attempt to suppress uh, their religion. And this was a Buddhist majority country, not a great idea to take this approach, needless to say. But by the time this happened, Kennedy had already become very frustrated and the American uh, uh, foreign policy establishment in the Kennedy administration, very frustrated with this DM regime. Of course, by uh, by August, uh, Kennedy was approving um, the uh, measures that the CIA would take to support a coup d'etat that would overthrow ZM in November. he would be murdered just weeks before President Kennedy himself was murdered. Mm-hmm. So both the prologue and the epilogue extend beyond that day, but the day, as you rightly point out, you know, dramatic. Uh, on that, uh, stay, stay staying with the, the with the Buddhist monk for, uh, for right now, on that piece, I, I, you know, I, I recall that in October of 63, President Kennedy called um, uh, Arthur Schulzberg of the New York Times and was trying to get David Halberstam removed uh, from that from that region because he didn't like the coverage that Halberstam had been writing about Vietnam. So to your point, it was really starting to be a it was starting to be a bigger mess than it was on anybody's radar, maybe except for the Kennedy administration itself. It was, and you know, by that time, by the, by June, um, and certainly by the end of the Kennedy administration, there were already some sixteen thousand so-called American advisors in Vietnam. So there was uh, the ongoing escalation that had occurred of a growing effort on the part of the United States to try to to assist. Uh, the South Vietnamese government to keep it in power um, and to um, prevent both the uh, North Vietnam and the Viet Cong um, from uh, uh, really pursuing uh, their nationalist uh, agenda uh, and the overthrow, of course, of ZM in the process. So all of this was a long time in the making, as you point out. Kennedy's frustration growing, and like the presidents that would succeed him, uh, never very happy with coverage of this by the press. 
Um, and Halberstam, of course, was uh, way ahead of the curve in, in writing about it. Uh, Professor Fitzpatrick, can you cite a president who was uh, completely pleased with the, with the press coverage that he, he received? <laughs> Does he exist? Does that well, president exist? I, <laughs> I can't. But you know what's interesting about Kennedy in this regard is that um, he was an avid follower of the news and he um, had a very good rapport with uh, reporters. And he also, as much as he criticized it, there's a wonderful interview that he did um, that I've seen in which he talks about uh, feeling that he was, he was very much uh, advantaged over Khrushchev um, in that uh, having a free press was absolutely vital to the workings of the American uh, presidency and to American democracy, because otherwise the president is insulated from really understanding and hearing um, appropriate criticism, questions, searching, uh, you know, interrogations, really, um, and that uh, it is an important element of a democratic society. So he, in in fact, he didn't appreciate criticism like all presidents, but he vigorously defended the importance of it. And, you know, add to that, certainly the Kennedy's uh, brothers attempted to control the news, uh, as many presidents and uh, their staff have. So, you know, guilty as charged on the final, but at least he held up the ideal of it. Right. Uh you know, one of the things I find interesting uh, about uh, President Kennedy in um, Vietnam, for I mean, for all of his skills, especially, I mean, he comes in office with a with 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 a, with a preference for foreign affairs. You know, Vietnam is sort of this lingering question mark on the Kennedy resume, and I, I certainly don't want to sound like an apologist for Johnson, who rightfully deserves the criticism that he's received in his handling of Vietnam. But as we talked earlier, um, this was decades in the making, and it's it's the area that you would think that John Kennedy, you know, had this real strength when he was in Vienna. He told Scotty Retson after the uh, after uh, meeting with Khrushchev that he's got to show some strength in, in Vietnam. Space. So how was it that he sort of missed the ball, if you will, and, and so this Buddhist monk um, self-emoliation sort of catches him off guard? How, any, any thoughts about that? I'm not sure that it caught him off guard as much as he, like the rest of the world, uh, found it a shocking, uh, it was a shocking photograph. Um, and it was beamed around the world. You know, there are those those images that, you know, similar to the way that we're focusing on this day, this sort of liminal moment when things are crystallized. And we, you know, another um, another such moment was the photograph of the dogs being turned mm -hmm. on civil rights demonstrators. You know, seeing that uh, man. Being having a police dog biting him and having that on the front page of the New York Times. Those moments uh, produce in Kennedy, as in uh, all the rest of us uh, sentient people, a response that, you know, crystallizes things. So in this case, I think the 
the sort of um, repression and brutality of the Ziem regime, and more importantly, the terrible publicity that these events generated um, in, you know, how do you win the hearts and minds of, of, of your citizenry um, when, you know, you have this kind of uh, horror being broadcast around the world? Um, Kennedy was shocked by it, but uh, by the, the, the instantaneous uh, image, but he was um, well aware, well aware of the problems um, in ZM's government. And his administration at that time was already trying to figure out, you know, how do we get this guy to do what we want or how do we get rid of him? Mm-hmm. And in the end, they chose the latter. Uh, you know, I think one of the things uh, uh, that that hurt uh, Lyndon Johnson in the aftermath of Vietnam, as I like to say, that television got to Birmingham before it got to Saigon. And once television got to Saigon, which is 66, 67, you, you, the narrative, you know, changed. Um, talk about, in a, in a larger sense, talk about, if you would, the, sort of the role of television um, and its impact and, inf- and inf- influence on June 11th. You know, the television really comes of Kennedy's the first television president, as you point out in your book. Um, and... So, uh, you know, it's been said, if the gods had conspired, could they have picked a better person to be the first television president? He had a glamorous wife, adorable children, a handsome, articulate man, uh, very, very charming. And suddenly um, we're seeing a lot more of uh, the president. We're seeing more of our wars. We're seeing more of uh, the violence and the tensions within the society. We becoming, you know, this is a game changer. And the Kennedy-Nixon debates in the 1960 election, of course, kind of kicked the whole thing off. Um, When you think about the fact, you know, imagine that people had never uh, heard Abraham Lincoln's voice or, you know, how would Lincoln have come across on television? Uh, had this had the Lincoln-Douglas debates, let's say, been televised, how would Lincoln have come across, you know? Uh, and uh, our previous presidents, how would they have fared? Would they have been elected with this kind of glare? We're living with the consequences of that sea change that occurs and that's ushered in in this period. And of course, the uh, exposure that Americans had to the war in Vietnam and the dailiness, the relentlessness of the embedded reporters really uh, showing what was happening eventually, you know, helps to turn the tide of public opinion uh, uh, in terms of the war. And Lyndon Johnson, of course, has to live with that, those consequences. When we look back, I've talked to a number of, of, of Kennedy disciples, uh, most notable, of course, being Ted Sorensen. And they all are beholden to the belief that um, had Kennedy been reelected in 64, he would have pulled out of Vietnam. And I wonder, uh, from your perspective as a historian, given the climate, the Cold War climate that we're in, would it have been that easy? Uh, just to pull out, or, uh, or, or do uh, you know the, the the threats of being soft on communism? Um, are, are, would those have lingered? 
uh, had Kennedy did something that dramatic? Well, you know, Byron, the interesting thing there is that, of course, we're never going to know. But Kennedy gave this interview with Walter Cronkite in, I think, October of 63. It was actually September. It was on Labor Day. Talks, was on Labor Day. Uh, uh, in which he, he, uh, he talks about, um, and that's been used by uh, people on both sides of this question <laughs> as evidence of what Kennedy would or wouldn't have done. Because he says both things. He says... Um, those people who say that we should pull out of Vietnam are completely wrong. But he also says in it um, that uh, in the final analysis, it's their war and they're going to have to win it or they will lose it. We can help them. We can provide assistance. And in terms of Kennedy, I think that he did, in fact, and what gives uh, rise to the ongoing debate is that although these advisors were doing a lot more than advising, he did not take the step that Lyndon Johnson took um, in um, March of 1965 of, of deploying combat troops. Once that happens, it's amazing how fast the escalation occurs because um, it is, uh, you know, we're up to uh, half a million soldiers, you know, as we get into the 19, later 1960s and with the rising casualties that go along with those deployments and the increased combat. So um, that is a line that Kennedy did not cross. Mm -hmm. And so whether he would have crossed it, we'll, we're just never going to know. Um, we do know that Kennedy, that Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon were all working within a certain Cold War paradigm that they genuinely believed in, I think, um, and that if you accepted the dictates of containment and the importance of containing communism, as all of those presidents did, um, there was a logic to them in the moment to the increasing involvement in Vietnam. So it's we'll, we will never know what Kennedy would have done. There are signs that he was already deeply skeptical. And I think Fred Lagavulle, the historian, is quite persuasive on this point uh, in his argument that uh, he does not think Kennedy would have taken it to the degree that Johnson did. But what? We won't know. Right. We'll never know. Right. And I guess one of the sad things in in, in, um, in critiquing Johnson, a lot of that escalation occurred after McNamara has a meeting with Johnson that basically says this war is not winnable by any metric we define war, and and then the escalation happens, so, which makes which makes Vietnam even more tragic and immoral in my view. Uh, Professor Fitzpatrick, let, let's move now to. Uh, uh, the uh, George Wallace in the in the in the schoolhouse door, and 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 when when Wallace mm. stands physically in front of the the, the, the door at the University of Alabama, and it was essentially a, a staged event they had planned uh, in advance that Vivian Malone and James Hood would go through a, a different door so so Wallace could save face. So now we're gonna have a little fun with you. I'm gonna ask you to speculate. 
And instead of John F. Kennedy as president, how do you think that that whole scene works out? Same same players, with the exception Lyndon Johnson's president. Does does Walsh get to save face in the same way? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, yes, I think that Johnson would have completely understood, don't you, the yeah. need to um, uh, the need for this, uh, you know segregationist i mean johnson was far more familiar with than jfk was with the type of uh powerful and seeking to be more powerful southern democratic governor who had to save face and um to stand up to his boasts that he had made in his inaugural address, this is Wallace, of course, you know, segregation now, segregation forever, right? Right. Um, So he, um, you know, this was a face-saving operation for Wallace, who had no desire to have a repeat of what had happened at Ole Miss. They didn't want a riot in Tuscaloosa either, Um, but they they continued, Wallace, continued to um, insist on his uh, stance that the federal government um, and the judiciary itself had no right to tell the state of Alabama uh, what to do. And, you know, they're using Civil War vintage theories of interposition and nullification Right. Uh, to sustain this. And this is 1963. So Nick Katzenbach, you know, plays the game and they allow him to stand there and and condemn this illegal action by the federal government. And then the students uh, attend. But nonetheless, these it's worth pausing on the courage of these young people um, who uh you know, uh, really, these were uh, these were amazingly for such young people, so poised and courageous uh, to, you know, what may have been a stunt for Wallace could have cost them their lives. You know, one thing I would I would say that uh, I, I I certainly take your point. I, I totally agree with you that they probably would have turned out very similar. Just just having read all of uh, Robert Carroll's books on Johnson, I just can't help but believe that he would he would exact some pound of flesh from Wallace behind the scenes. He would have he would have gotten something else out of the deal. I just seems like the way that Johnson would have operated. <laughs> yeah. Well, he would have, uh, I would have loved to have listened to the tapes, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What was going on behind the scenes? Uh, Because I think Lyndon Johnson had a very, very keen understanding of of these, uh, you know, he was himself a product of the, the, uh, the Democratic Party in the South and was uh, in pushing forward on uh, civil rights. Um, you know, knew very, very well what he was up against. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with noted uh, historian Ellen Fitzpatrick about the events of June 11th, 1963. And Professor Fitzpatrick, you know, I often describe the World Wars One and Two as one war with a really poorly constructed halftime. And 
and from your perspective as a historian, in a similar vein, uh, when we look at the Kennedy and Johnson years, was it one presidency that highlighted in very glaring fashions both the strengths and weaknesses of two men? You know, I think that they, um, yes, both of them had, um, both of them had very different strengths. Um, and yet they were at one on a critical way of thinking about the presidency. And that was uh, the sense that uh, it was imperative to use the powers of the presidency to try to redress what they, as people that had really young men that had really been greatly influenced by Franklin Roosevelt, by living through the events of the early 20th century, uh, to really try to redress the inequalities that existed in American society, to try to uh, really uh, look at problems that continue to, to uh, bedevil our society today. They had a very affirmative view of uh, the way in which the federal government could, in fact, uh, overcome these differences uh, and uh, leadership, I should say, in the federal government and really make a difference in the lives of all Americans by enacting um, broad-scale reforms of the kind that FDR did during the Depression, but this is happening in a time of prosperity for most Americans. So it's idealistic, it's optimistic, it's an expansive view of what government can do. Um, and of course, they, uh, although they had great opposition from conservatives within their own party, they also had substantial majorities to deal with in Congress. And Johnson had just a remarkable record of achievement. Really uh, very tragic that his presidency was, um, you know, ultimately would be judged, um, you know, uh, his legacy uh, in the Vietnam War would so overshadow that. The Kennedy's civil rights speech that night, where do you rank it um, in, mm. in the Kennedy highlight reel? I rank it high in the real of United States history in the 20th century. I rank it very, very high. I think it was a remarkable moment. And uh, I think it's one that is really worth revisiting at this moment in, our, in the life of our nation. Because Kennedy really becomes the first president in American history to condemn segregation as a moral wrong, to say, you know, we face a moral crisis as a, as a nation. And no president, even Truman, who had desegregated the, uh, uh, the armed services, uh, had, uh, and Eisenhower sending troops to Little Rock to uh, ensure the integration of uh, Central High, or uh, after the Brown decision, no president ever gave a speech like the speech that John F. Kennedy gave that night in which he said, you know, a revolution is at hand. 
And uh, it's a remarkable speech, I think. And in, in, uh, I wish that we, we had uh, today, uh, we would see, um, obviously that speech doesn't need to be given again, at least word for word, although its continued relevance is rather depressing a half a century later. Um, having a president sit down and talk to the American people, white and black, across all parts of the country, across all lines, and saying, you know, um, this is an old story. A hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, and yet their, their uh, heirs, their sons, are not fully free. It was a remarkable thing that of course should have happened much earlier. Um, but um, I think it's an extremely important moment. And uh, you wish for the kind of, uh, you wish for the kind of moral leadership that it, it was too late in coming. You know, Kennedy's been criticized rightfully for that, but it did come on that day in June. And it's a powerful speech, even today, to read and hear. One of the things about that speech where I don't think John Kennedy gets enough credit, if you look at John Kennedy circa January 1963, and the same one that gives that speech on uh, on the evening of June 11th, as you well know, that speech wasn't complete. And if anyone watches it on YouTube, the last, say, 20% of that speech, he's just sort of winging it. And so you, yes. and so the things that he's saying, I mean, you—that's when you find out what's really in a person. I mean, it wasn't like he was just repeating Ted Sorensen's words. I mean, I think that to me is what makes that speech just so 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 gripping. Your your thoughts? Yes, I agree. The part of it was um, he delivered extemporaneously, which is pretty hard to imagine in these days of teleprompters and you know the sort of. Uh, blow-dried, you know, media uh, massaged uh, presentations that the public is um, uh, so often uh, uh, exposed to uh, from our officials. It was, the sincerity, I think, was very clear. And, you know, Ted Sorensen could write some pretty good words. I was thinking about this earlier today, but it was the passion and the... um, you know, the verve with which Kennedy delivered it, which, you know, um, I don't think in that case, uh, you know, you could fake sincerity. He, He meant it. He clearly meant it. And he, I think he was also reaching out to whites who, to whom he knew this was unwelcome news. You know, those who, you know, he, he said, you, you know, you may not, essentially he was saying you may not like it but it's here we're at this moment you know the pendulum has swung and we need to move forward as a country and do the right thing and um i think it's a a really a just a remarkable speech you know when you look at the candy when you look at the candy years um probably prior to that moment the 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 uh Biggest criticism, certainly one emanating from from civil rights community, would would probably have been 
Kennedy's unwillingness to risk something, to really, you know, move from the middle and, and really take a stand. And I think that night he sort of swung the pendulum, as you said, and he was willing to risk something. And I think when presidents risk something, I, I think that's where, um, where we look at them as great presidents. Uh, Lincoln risking something, FDR risking something. And Kennedy, um, I'm not saying Kennedy's a great president or a bad president, I'm saying, but he was in that moment he was willing to risk something. And I think the, 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 the Kennedy presidency really really sort of takes off after that. Well, the interesting thing about this, Byron, is that I think what you're seeing there, uh, the political risk aside, um, is the, it's a demonstration of moral leadership. This was, he presented it as a moral issue. Um, And so, when you, when you define something as a moral issue, you're saying, this is right and this is wrong. And he put himself on the side of the civil rights movement at that moment, saying, this is right. And what's happened has been wrong. And so there was really no going back from that point. There was no way of trying to sort of thread the needle and say there are good people on both sides, right? He wasn't saying that. He wasn't condemning individuals, but he wasn't saying there are two sides to the question. He was saying there really aren't. There's one side. And, you know, yes, there's a history in which it's embedded, but there's a choice here. And it's been made for us by our historical moment. And he landed there. And that is a really powerful thing when that happens. And I fear we don't see enough of it. I would add here, too, um, that I think that it demonstrates that the president's posture and words and conduct and presentation matters a lot more than we might have thought. You know, people say, oh, well, anyone can give a speech. It's just rhetoric. Yeah, well, we've seen what rhetoric in the opposite direction can produce as well. And so the, this, these trappings of the presidency, of speaking in a way that provides moral leadership, um, is is very interesting. It's interesting so much attention has been placed on Kennedy's private life and the immorality of his behavior, you know, as a husband or, um, you know, uh, I make no excuses for Kennedy in this regard. But this is a moment of moral political leadership that I think that we have much to learn from. Well, well to your point, um, I mean, as, as um, we're talking about, as shortly after Kennedy gives that speech, uh, NAACP director Medgar Evers is, is assassinated, and, and, the, at, and at the burial at Arlington, he doesn't attend, but he sends Robert Kennedy, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, to attend the burial, and then he invites uh, Mary Lee Evans and her children uh, for a photo op, and he sits and talks with them, 
I don't think John Kennedy in January of '63 does that, let alone 1960s. So th- that whole evolution in that in that moral leadership wasn't just that night, but we see him t- taking a side. Here's where I stand on this issue. Yes, and I think he also understood by them uh, by that point, and I think that Birmingham was the Birmingham events in Birmingham in the spring were critical to this. That. Um, the the he was extremely concerned about the the violence and the extremism of the opposition that was being evoked by um, by King and uh, um, the civil the increasingly aggressive uh, civil rights activism, which was designed to to highlight the the issues, and he saw. Uh, the response to that. And, you know, they still were uh, not super enthusiastic about the March on Washington, for instance. They, both Kennedy brothers were, you know, feeling like this was potentially a dangerous thing. They were worried about violence breaking out and that that would hurt the civil rights legislation. So it wasn't as if they suddenly, you know, uh, put themselves at the front of the barricades, you know, they were dragged there. They were dragged there. Um, But, you know, um, this is about rising to one's historical moment, you know, which King himself had done. uh, And during the Montgomery bus boycott, when he was asked to, you know, have his church be used as a place to organize. He just uh, not. He was a young man at that point. He had just arrived, and he was like, you know, uh, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> he made the right decision, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. And then, and then you also had, um, you know, and just speaking about the the in the aftermath of the assassination of Medgar Evers, then you had some unsung heroes such as John Dora of the Kennedy administration, a guy who literally put himself mm-hmm. between the Jackson police, you know, and the mob. And 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 it doesn't it, as I read those accounts, it doesn't seem like the mob was very interested in being nonviolent. So then, you, so you, so it's sort of. Kennedy's ethos sort of filters down so people are embracing it um, who are literally standing, you know, in the middle, on the front lines. They were willing to barricade themselves. And he probably prevented untold numbers of, 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 of uh, uh, violence and mayhem. Yes, there were, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a very, very dramatic story of uh, people really pushing hard against, you know, um, against uh, wrongs that were institutionalized and that had a long history and that were not, that did not give way easily. It was a struggle. And, you know, there are many uh, sort of unsung heroes, I think, in that story. Mm-hmm. No question about that. You know, you know, one of the things is just going back to Kennedy uh, for a moment, specifically when we look at this month of June, not only, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, we talked about the civil rights speech already. That was June 11th. Just the day before was the American University peace speech. And then two weeks after that, yes. Ish behind Berliner. Have we, has any president ever had a month of or, memorable oratory like that? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't recall of anybody who, who, who's had 
just a meaningful oratory. Uh, I know it's really amazing when you think that it's the last, it's also the last months of Kennedy's life. Um, I think that I read, if I'm recalling this correctly, when he, he leaves um, uh, Berlin um, uh, and uh, he is saying, um, you know, we'll never have a, to one of his advisors, we'll never have another day like this in our lives, you know. Uh, those all those events of that um, that early uh, the spring the spring and the summer and then into the fall uh, Kennedy came to Amherst College in October I was uh, I was 11 years old I saw Kennedy that day it was uh, you know I was one person in a crowd of a few thousand people. Um, at the groundbreaking of the Robert Frost Library, and he was dead a month later. And so these are the final months of Kennedy's life, and they were certainly very, very full. Uh, and uh, the, the historic nature of them, uh, you do feel as if he was really coming into his own as president in those months, and that he had learned through those disastrous early months and the first year was rocky to say the least. Well, you, you could, one could make the argument that 1961 is arguably the worst uh, foreign policy first year for any 20th century president. And then we, then and now look at where we are now by June 11th, 1963. So there, so there's definitely a learning curve. <laughs> he learned. Yes, he learned. And you know, he was young, and uh, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on, as there is for every president. I mean, you look at what President Biden is facing right now. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult job, to say uh, the very least. Uh, the responsibilities are enormous. Um, when we think of uh, this day that, we, that we've been talking about, June 11th, uh, is it one of the key data points in, in, in understanding the Kennedy presidency? I, I, uh, does it have any lasting significance or is it just a day that, that, that a couple nerds like you and I just got together to talk about? How, how would you define it? <laughs> I would say that, uh, Byron, it just crystallized uh, the sort of key tensions that our country was facing at that moment in time. Um, the civil rights struggle that finally uh, breaks through to the point that we have a president of the United States willing to address the nation and to say, you know, a revolution is at hand. We're, um, you know, our country needs to change and will change. And I will, you know, these committing himself to, to trying to um, make that happen by introducing civil rights legislation. And um, certainly we see the foreshadowing of um, the ongoing uh, agonies of, of Vietnam, which will cost at that point, um, you know, 16,000 advisors in Vietnam. And that by the end of that war, you know, there'll be over 58,000 American soldiers dead, you know, many, many uh, Vietnamese. And uh, 
So we're seeing the, the foreshadowing of that. So I think it crystallizes a moment in time. Uh, what about the day itself for just um, any, any, any lessons? Does, does it offer any lessons for us in, 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 in the present moment um, that, that we might sort of take a page from June 11th uh, in order to move forward? Or, or we just in a, are we just in a different time? <laughs> no, you know, I feel uh, teaching about this period this fall, I was teaching a survey of American history that went from Reconstruction to the present. And I've been teaching for over 40 years. And what I couldn't believe in teaching this course this time was how easy it was to explain these tensions to the current generation of students, given the salience today of these issues. So talking about the tensions of reconstruction and the effort to try to um, institution rights for all of our citizens and to overcome the legacies of slavery and the violence and resistance and difficulties that engendered, as well as the courageous efforts to try to keep progress moving forward. I didn't have to work very hard to explain this history to my students. It all felt very current. And I think in a lot of ways that June 11 of 63 feels all too current uh, in our country today. So I say, you know, you can look at it two ways, which is we haven't come too far, or in fact, I think we have made tremendous progress, but also to see uh, the opportunity to rise to the historical moment and keep change moving ahead. Professor Ellen Fitzpatrick, University of New Hampshire, thank you so much. It has been an honor to be in conversation with you on The Public Morality. My pleasure, Byron. Thank you for inviting me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶